Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Banking Matters. I'm your host, Daniel Baker. Joining us today, we have Peter Madlem, who's the partner at Avalon Wealth. Peter has over 35 years of high net worth and institutional investment management experience. He has a successful and diverse career in the arts as an author, marketing, and finance. Entrepreneurial by nature, he has founded or has grown three successful companies. Prior to joining Avalon Wealth as a partner, Peter was the regional CIO at Northern Trust, where his department was a top-performing investment group, and his individual risk-adjusted returns were in the top 1% of all Northern portfolio managers. He left Northern to assume the CIO position for Monticato Bank and Trust. Peter rebuilt the department's investment research capabilities there and investment processes and policies and procedures and compliance infrastructure. He attracted a successful team of investment professionals who were able to expand solutions across high net worth, endowment, and not-for-profit enterprises. He was responsible for managing the bank's billion-dollar bond portfolio and was consistently a top performer across bank bond fund manager peers. As an author, he has written five books on investment topics ranging from ETFs, closed-end funds, REITSs, and technical analysis. He founded an investment advisory company specializing in closed-end funds that rapidly grew to become the second largest of its kind before he sold it, and he has been frequently quoted in Investor's Business Daily, The Wall Street Journal, Kiplinger's, and The New York Times. Prior to entering the financial sector, Peter has had multiple different positions, including as a composer and arranger and studio musician um, in the recording and television industry, as an academic and a professor where he taught college and university level for 12 years, founding the undergraduate and graduate class guitar program at the UC Santa Barbara, and he's a charter financial analyst holder and has earned his Bachelor of Arts and Masters of Arts from UC Santa Barbara. Peter, we're excited to have you on the show with your plethora of experience. Welcome. Oh, thank you. It's quite an honor. So, Peter, I, I know we went through a, a chunk of the different things that you've got on your resume, but I know there's some that we didn't talk. And I heard through the grapevine that you were once a championship Bronco rider. Is that correct? Um, I was in the top 10. I was not number okay. one. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that was a period, of, a particularly violent period in my life. <laughs> so I've got to ask, how, how old were you when you were doing this? 16, 17. Okay. So younger kid, before you started in the financial sector and everything, decided to take up the rodeo scene. Well, before. So I, I had uh, two dual interests at that point. One was music. Okay. And the other was, was staying on a bucking horse. So then what was it that got you on the horse in the first place? <laughs> oh, we grew up on a, on a horse ranch. And the, the, the family was particularly interested in American saddlebreds. So you had the English saddle and the little top hat that mm -hmm. you, you would post. And I just, it just didn't appeal to me. So we, I had my uh, father, I convinced him to invest in other breeds. Uh -huh. And then I started, started pursuing uh, a little wilder side. Oh, very good. That sounds like a lot of fun. So then how did you transition from classical guitarist and bronco rider to to the financial sector i mean that that's a little bit of a shift it's a huge shift and it's it was a i never really shifted away from classical guitar i continue to write for some of the best artists in the world Great. and um in fact just completed uh, a new cd 
that um, then I, I shop to other musicians and then they can select pieces they want to play. And then, Oh, awesome. So yeah. the, the move, the move to finance, uh, I was doing a lot of studio work and, and, and uh, touring. And when you tour, you go to all of these elegant places. You can go to Paris, you can go to mm -hmm. New York, you can go to Buenos Aires, but you only see it from the inside of a hotel room. Right. And you're on the road to make money. You have to be on the road continually. So, um, I got married and we had our first child and I decided I really want to stay closer to home. So I left, uh, the gigging industry and concert industry and the university where I had gone to school asked me to come back and if I would teach classical guitar and, and form a, a department for them. So I did. And then as our second child arose, I, I just didn't see financially. I wanted to stay mm -hmm. on the central Santa Barbara. So I needed to make a higher income. I'd always had a, a knack for investing, I thought. And so I thought, okay, I'll do that. And I was watching Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. That's how long ago mm -hmm. it was. And there was a gentleman mm -hmm. on it named Frank Cappiello. And I told my wife, I'm going to be his partner. And six months later, Frank and I were partners and we had an investment advisory firm. We grew the investment advisory firm over a few, course of a few years. I sold it. That was the period when I wrote financial books and went off and did interactive multimedia, writing code for 3D animation and lots of interesting stories here and people I met. The most interesting, of course, with the, the Pixar people. From there, we went on. on I decided that um, I could probably just focus on finance. So I gained employment. I sold my business, gained employment at a local uh, Santa Barbara Bank and Trust, which is long gone. It's now UBS yeah. um, through various acquisitions and became a portfolio manager. And then from there went to Northern Trust. And then from there went to um, Montecito Bank and Trust. And then from there, I decided to go back and once again, form my own firm. So I partnered up with the people at Avalon and there we are. Well, very good. So then you've you've got plenty of time and plenty of experience, obviously, in the in the financial sector. So then, this time of year, it's it's the end of the year. People are are looking at at restructuring some of their portfolios. People are looking at at making some changes to their investments, and and they're looking forward at twenty twenty four. Um, so really, today we'd we'd like to kind of look forward and and see what the economic headwinds and the economic environment is is like. So let's let's jump right into that. What what are you seeing this time of year? What what's going on in the in the market or with people's portfolios? Well, the toughest thing that that banks are facing, particularly community banks, is funding costs. And a report just came out today or yesterday from the Kansas City Fed, which sums it up um, pretty succinctly. So anyone that wants a deep dive. Just go to their their site and you can look at it. It's called Community Bank Funding is Getting Costlier and Riskier. Mm -hmm. um, so far, community banks have been able to hold on deposits more so than the larger banks and have been able to restructure. The problem is if they're looking at, at uh, different sources of funding, non-traditional funding, that's where the risks are. And the FDIC is somewhat concerned. But that article is out there. I think it's worth a read. As an investor, um, it's just I'm finding that portfolios are that the bank stocks are significantly undervalued. And I think they probably bottomed in their valuations. I think that the, for an investor, I favor smaller banks 
uh, longer term because they've got stronger organic loan growth potential and less regulatory risk. And of course, there's always that merger and acquisition monster sitting out there at this point. And uh, then we have much lower valuation levels in that sector. And having worked for 10 years at a community bank, the depository is the depositors are very uh, loyal because of your involvement in the community. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's one of the major pluses that they have. I think the problem that, that the banks face now at the end of the year is, all right, what are they going to do with their bond portfolios? That was, I was fortunate to be in the zero and, and zero interest rate, the zero interest rate policy when I was running the bank's right. bond portfolio. But it, there was, it, what a period that was. It's just no <laughs> it was an interesting time for sure. No yield anywhere. That's changing, but it's created a whole other host of problems. So then, what are, what are what are we expecting to to kind of really happen with like margin expectations and and the, the future trajectory of of cost funds? What are, what are we looking at here? I spend time talking to um, management, various depositories, and they all have different sort of divergent opinions on the future trajectory of the cost of funds. The consensus out there is that the Fed has finished its hiking cycle, and some depositories believe that the upward pressure on the cost of funds is likely over. And I think it's fair to say that the Fed is likely finished raising rates, but that doesn't really tell the whole story. The expectation for rate cuts that started to drift into the first half of 2024, like May or June, Mm -hmm. is probably the most likely. The market is saying a 66% chance in the Fed funds futures for a cut in March. Personally, I see absolutely no rate cuts in 2024 and likely little, if any, easing in 2025. Risks, therefore, I believe, are tilted toward some more tightening before there is any policy reversal. So let me, let me jump in there really quick then. You're, you're saying that – so from what I've been seeing uh, is that a lot of people are saying that there are going to be rate cuts. What are, what are you – what are you seeing that that's making you say that there there won't be rate cuts or that those are, are less likely? I hope I'm wrong, but the backdrop for this is simple. Inflation remains far above target, mm. and the monetary policy in real terms is not particularly tight by historical norms. And the, right. economy, is, the economy has already shown with employment and GDP, we're looking at 2.7 for the last quarter now, that it's... It's, it's shown that these rates are not tight by historical numbers, and it can certainly exist and grow within these confines. So even if the Fed should begin easing the cost of funds, uh, they won't be moving lower soon. Yeah, that, that, makes, that makes complete sense. So then how, does, how did the market respond really when you saw a lot of the, the banks, not a lot, when you saw some of the banks failing um, and comparatively much larger banks than we saw in in 2008, 2009, 2010 era, I mean, Silicon Valley Fed and and, and whatnot were, were much larger entities. What, what kind of were happening in the wake of that? It's funny. Um, while at Montecito, one of the peer banks that we would we would watch very closely because of their profitability was Silicon Valley Bank and very bright people running the bank. And mm-hmm. when I look at it, when I look at the bond portfolio, what did they own? They own treasuries, but they made it, they made a bad duration bet, which is unfortunate. 
but it, it, there wasn't any malfeasance or anything there. It was, it was a well-run bank. They just they did not run their asset liability. Um, they, they made the wrong choices. But to, and also their their model was slight, very unique. That's that's a completely different. That's a PhD thesis actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, the wave of bank failures was um, the list of of the well the last the last the last funding took place. I mean, the in the spring of 2023, following the wave of bank failures that you mentioned, Fed funds rate was below was five percent or below. And I'm trying to remember back now. Treasury rates were all well below 5%. As a result, there's going to be a similar amount of funding resetting higher in the spring to current rates. In other words, the market still hasn't caught up to current rates for funding. And therefore, they're going to be resetting higher in the spring. And with overall liquidity, pressures have abated since earlier this year. The money supply, as measured by M2, continues to drift lower. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that without new money entering the banking system, supply and demand dynamics for deposits will also continue to put upward pressure on borrowing costs. Right. So how then do you find a new money? Because, I mean, a, a bank is constantly looking to expand their, their, their funding and, and everything like that, increase their deposit growth. From, from your experience, what, what revenues should a bank be taking? Their sources of revenue. You've got reciprocal deposits, which are deemed safer than, say, going out to uh, brokered uh, listed uh, deposits. Those have increased, and that's all discussed in the um, the um, Fed, uh, the Kansas Bank report that just came out. And so you can see what people are doing, and they are concerned about brokered seeking brokered funds and. Uh, of the safest, they say, would be reciprocal. I don't think so, simply because of what I just discussed. Rates mm-hmm. continue; they're going to have to go higher to to reset to where the the market has taken them. So then, let's talk about some of the the losses that banks may have taken, or that that people may have taken. Um, I mean, there's there's been, if I if I understand correctly, there's been relatively higher earnings in the the current market. What what are we looking at there? It's I have to think about that for a second because some banks, you know, they're, they're because of their the loan demand, they've been able to to do well this year. But I I think I'll just go back to what I was saying before: as the funding costs catch up to the market, then there will be more pressure on margins and. They'll have to come up with different sources of funding other than just deposit. So then, is, is strong loan demand uh, on the banks is that is that really sufficient to to overcome the the rising costs that they're seeing? Um, and that's that's a, a very important question. Uh, on, on a few conference calls, I've heard statements like, "I'm making good money on my new loans." So my margin should be safe and strong loan demand, uh, despite significantly higher borrowing costs, has generated solid margins and earnings for most financial institutions this year. The bigger question is how things proceed going forward and expectations are for loan demand to slow in 2024 versus this year, but not to the point where deposit growth will be able to fund it. 
So new sources of funding will be required, mm -hmm. which are getting progressively more expensive. Low-yielding bond portfolios have been below marginal borrowing costs for the better part of a year. But the drift in the cost of funds is creating a situation where the bond portfolio is close to reaching the point of becoming a negative carry to the average cost of funds. The drift in the cost of funds is creating a situation where the bond portfolio is close to reaching the point of being a negative carry position for the average cost of funds. And interestingly enough, this condition is actually a case for the Fed to ease next year. And that's one of the stronger uh, points for those who are on the side that the, the Fed will ease by March. Okay. So then I know that with, with, with a lot of the backdrop of the, the current earnings and then the, the future expectations kind of being uncertain, what are, what are you seeing some banks or depositories, what are they considering doing at this time? Like what, what are they they're looking at doing in this, this current environment? Yes. You, you brought this up earlier when, um, what, what can, um, depositories, how can they invest their, their profits? to prepare themselves for uh, higher rates or for interest rate movements. Yeah. And so we do have uncertain future expectation for interest rates and also for the economy and the level of borrowing. And so it's becoming more and more common to see depositories consider, quote, spending some of their current earnings to improve earnings in the future in the form of loss trades. And were I running a bank bond portfolio now, this is exactly where I would be spending putting my attention there's significant hesitancy to do this earlier in the year which makes sense but the market has a short memory and mm -hmm. it's clearly moved on from the liquidity driven bank failures that we experienced last spring so a lot of depositories decided to reclassify significant portions of their low yielding bonds uh, as held to maturity and that's a way to avoid having to recognize the impact of unrealized losses on accumulated other comprehensive income, AOCI, and ultimately on the equity of the institution. So the strategy, and there was a huge period back in maybe three years ago when banks were trying to determine whether we should change to rather than available to sale to hold to maturity. And well, that's back again. Some banks did uh, reclassify to hold to maturity, hold to maturity. The strategy did improve it. For AOIC, but uh, for those that chose to utilize, but nothing changed about the earnings power of those low yielding mm -hmm. bonds. They continue to offer low book yields, and now they can't be sold without tainting the entire portfolio, with a few exceptions. And so, as a result, those bonds are no longer available as a source of liquidity for the institution, but continue to offer yields well below the current market. So then just for just for our audience, why would the sale of those low book yields, why would it taint the entire portfolio? Because it, as held to maturity, it, it goes direct to the bottom line, hits equity. So you're taking a loss. Right. So if they if they do sell that, then then ultimately the, the banker, the, the holder of it would then be taking a, a loss on those those items, right. correct? Perfect. So then what kind of strategies are you seeing financial institutions taken in regarding to this? Well, for the institutions that maintained their bond holdings as available for sale, 
the portfolio has remained a tool to generate liquidity. So recent data mm. from the S&P Market Intelligence shows that mm, nearly 200 banks with assets between 100 million and 100 billion reduced their medium AFS holdings by 13.3 million during the last quarter. So, and so the the percentage declines in AFS holdings during the quarter ranged from 10% to as much as 70%. Um, Mm -hmm. So the average was 17% across. So I I hate throwing numbers out because they quickly glaze over, but let's just say it's been increasing. And the commonly used reference point of the time to recover and earn back a loss for the banks, for the bonds selling it or marketed at a significant discount, it still remains a challenge. It used to be measured in months. Now it's measured in years. And many institutions are looking beyond earn back periods, just forget it, and are focused on what it means for future earnings and margins. So losses in the bond portfolio are ultimately a zero sum game. The impact can either be felt as a one-time loss immediately or through margin bleed over the next several years. There's no escaping it. While realizing a significant loss is always a tough pill to swallow, 2023 earnings are often above budget and management teams are saying that they're getting more comfortable with taking large losses while earnings are strong. No, well, yeah, and using proceeds yeah. to restructure the bond portfolio and or pay down high cost borrowings to delever the balance sheet to help improve future earnings. So then if they're not just utilizing those gains to, to offset the losses, um, what else should they be doing to, to, to maybe help with some of those These losses? These are topics that we never have talked about a few years back, but you can have branch sales and leasebacks. You, you can mm-hmm. do CDFI grants but you'd have to be in a low income community to really qualify. Um, You can divest businesses. Some bank have bank, some banks have bank owned insurance companies. That's been a popular divestiture. So those are three of the things that that can be done. So when it comes down to like paying back borrowing then or reinvesting, which, which would make more sense? Once again, it depends on the state of your portfolio. You can use proceeds from a loss sale to pay down high cost borrowings and deliver the balance sheet. It's been a common strategy lately. The same logic applies to selling bonds to pay down borrowings as it does to selling bonds to reinvest the proceeds into other bonds. If the market yield on the sell side bonds is higher than the cost of borrowings, the loss won't be recovered over the life of the bonds. So for example, if you have Mm -hmm. bonds with a 2% book yield, that have a 5.75% market or takeout yield, it doesn't make sense to sell those to pay down borrowings with a 5.5% rate. But if those same 2% right. book yield bonds had a market yield less than 5.5%, you can start to justify the trade. So anecdotic, anecdotally, that means most trades go partially to pay down borrowings, but mostly to restructure the, the bond portfolio. When I say anecdotally, that means that. That's okay. what most banks are doing. So then that, that leaves the question of reinvestment then, right? So I know rates have come down since the the, the ten year was what's bouncing around the five percent. What 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 where should we be putting the money then? It's, it's funny on the investment side, so many investors now 
want nothing to do with bonds, and yet bonds are offering some of the highest and strongest return possibilities now versus equities in 100 years. So it's a, a pretty remarkable yeah. time to be looking at bonds. So we have uh, the expectation is the Fed is finished hiking rates. As I've already said, I don't think that's true. Um, yeah. But so if I'm wrong, and I hope I am, we could continue, continue to see interest rates, uh, floating rate securities would be attractive because they serve as a natural hedge to rising funding costs and offer pretty attractive current yields. In certain instances, rates would need to fall by 100 basis points or more before a fixed rate alternative would offer higher yields. So floating rate hmm. still. Current coupon bonds are bonds that are uh, new issue coupon levels and trade at or above par. They offer the highest yields, but they have a lot more optionality or negative convexity than some of their lower coupon counterpoints. So with most of the yield forecasts out there calling for lower rates over the next 12 to 24 months, the case could be made to consider lower coupon instruments that should perform better in a down rate uh, environment. Positivity confects instruments with lockout, generally bullets or bullet-like structures, makes sense if you have a down rates bias, if that's your position, if that's where you mm -hmm. want to look. But they can be difficult to justify based on the yield alone. So you have to look beyond the yield and find out what would be the impact. Right. So you're not alone when you're making these reinvestment decisions. There are a lot of resources out there that can walk you through and help you consider all of the impacts, both positive and negative, on any uh, bond swap or any uh, improvement or changes to a bond portfolio. So let me let me ask you about those resources then, really quick, if, if that's all right. Um, you don't necessarily have to name any company in specific, but what kind of resources would we would you be looking at, or what kind of resources would you generally try well, to? Well, every every bank bond portfolio of sufficient size will be working with a network of institutional brokers, and you can leverage those resources um, pretty handily, and uh, come up with a in a sort of an amalgamation or a, uh, you can curate the various um, pieces of advice that they'll offer and come up with solutions, but utilize the people yeah. that you're actually dealing with in your bond, your bond transactions. So really take advantage of the, the tools you've got access to and, and develop a, a sound strategy and then a process and everything. And that, that should hopefully serve you. Serve yeah. Because you right. the bond brokers are in the same situation along the opposite side of the fence that, that, banks are in their bond portfolios. So they want to improve the uh, financial strength of the institutions that they serve. So they, for, for once in a long time, they're on mm -hmm. the same side of the table as the client. Well, it's always comforting when you, when you kind of get them on the same side. It, it, it prevents some of the, the conflict that can lead to so much turmoil in the financial sector. So that's, that's comforting to know. <laughs> when I was trading bonds, I used to, um, there were some brokers that to be perfectly honest, I never understood what they were saying. And, uh, but there are others that would, would very, very helpful, but lead you astray. And, and some others would have really, really, really excellent, thoughtful ideas. And it seemed to rotate based upon what the inventory was. But all in all, everybody's on the same side of the table at this point. So seek, if you need to, um, seek advice or a consultation. It can be done. That's very good. It can so be then cleaned up now. 
Yeah. So then if you could give really one piece of advice on the, I mean, with the, with the current economic trend, the way, way things are going, you can either give advice individually or, or in kind of an, your official capacity as a CIO, like, or sorry, as, as partner, what, what type of advice would you extend? Like what, what should preferably banks, like what should they be, be looking at in, in today's market? What should they be doing? Well, we actually just went, went through what I think they should be doing, which is looking at ways that they can lower their cost of funds and they can start looking across, uh, I mean, they can sale of assets and lease back, et cetera, or just looking how they can now leverage their, their bond portfolio if they maintained it as available for sale. Uh, they can start utilizing that as a, a source of future liquidity. Okay, so really, like that—that that is that is the the summarization of, of everything. That's that's yeah. the, the 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 suggestion according to, to Peter is like find ways to lower your costs and and leverage your 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 bond portfolio if it's been maintained as AFS. Perfect. Well, that that's a that's a great piece of advice, and and Peter, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Um, I I am like in in awe at, at, at the the experience that you've got behind this. So the the ability you have to come on and and, and share some of this with us, we really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. For the rest of our guests listening in, that's banking matters. <laughs>